Sunder Episode 8, A Credible Plan to Win Section 1, Final Years Inside It is 2001, and I have been incarcerated for a solo armed bank robbery for more than three years. The World Trade Centers were attacked and destroyed. George W. Bush begins, in 2001, the war in Afghanistan that will drag on for decades and kill nearly a quarter million people. The Department of Homeland Security is created and the Patriot Act is signed into law. The first Harry Potter movie and the first Lord of the Rings movie come out this year, as does Fast and Furious and Spirited Away. A few years in at Sheridan FCI, my name cycled to the top of the waiting list for furniture factory positions. Despite the exploitation, these jobs were preferred because factory work paid the best wage in the prison. I would soon hold one of these grade one positions with only a small number of prisoners making a higher wage. I made $1.15 an hour in 2002. After my release, I was making $11 an hour working as an artisan bread baker. The prison furniture factory fabricated wooden parts and then built and painted federal government office furniture to order. Credenzas, desks, wardrobes, bookshelves, tables, chairs, couches. The shop stock position in the factory took in and inventoried all the fabricated parts and then would get pick sheets for an order. We would load the required parts onto heavy carts and then push the filled carts over to the assembly areas. The machines in the furniture factory hum and clang saw blades buzz and moan while fans give a subsonic rumble, venting the paint spraying areas. Nail and staple guns rattle, pressurized air releases, mallets hammer as pieces are connected, men talk and yell over the noise. It smells like wood glue, sawdust, and paint. Correctional officers oversee the laboring prisoners. Your boss is your captor. Heavy carts we used in the furniture factory were made out of oak, with high-centered wheels in the middle and handle holes built into the cast-iron corners, where you slot in two oak handles, each about four feet long, to push or pull the cart. My shins are still covered with scars from the cast-iron corners and the bolts sticking out of them, when I would accidentally clip my shins on the carts. The job was not great. Your boss is a prison guard, and you are being exploited. Yet it sickens me to say that I felt less dehumanized working in prison than I did when I worked at Amazon in 2020, where my boss was a faceless app and computer screen counting seconds, and the purpose of Amazon is to squeeze the life force out of you in three years before you collapse from injuries or grow angry enough to want to organize. Along with indicators like the attempted rollback of child labor laws in 10 states, seeing Amazon work today as more soul-sucking than prison work a few decades ago is one of the many indicators of a slide backwards on what it means to be a worker in our society. Don't get me wrong, it did feel good to earn enough inside to cover commissary and cost of stamps, to start paying down the required restitution to the courts, and to send a little money to Ms. Sunder. Some immigrants in federal prison sent their saved wages regularly to their families in other countries in the way that many people, and especially men, find some identity and usefulness in earning something to give to family or to resolve debts and prepare for release, there was some solace. But knowing that our labor was undermining other workers and driving down wages and conditions on the outside, 
knowing that we were being deeply exploited, that felt rough. We would talk about it sometimes in the furniture factory or on the yard between prisoners. White prisoners tended to focus more on how prison labor was undermining good jobs, while black and Latino prisoners brought up more the issue of involuntary servitude and our labor as prisoners being rampant exploitation. It wasn't the focus of our discussions. A lot more time was spent on gossip about prisoners and staff, about sports and family and relationships. Most agreed about the subject of our exploitation, but other than malicious compliance, food strikes, and legal challenges, we had no credible plan to change the structure imprisoning us. Prison afforded me a fair amount of time for writing. Without computer access, phone calls and letters and visits were the main interaction with the outside world. Phone calls were logistically harder. There's almost always a line, it costs, and it's a high stress point for prisoners. Visiting hours are limited, and most friends or family live an hour or more away. So I wrote a lot of letters to maintain contact with people. I wrote about five letters a week on average, three going to Ms. Sunder and two others to friends. I didn't want to completely disappear inside prison and wanted to maintain some outside connections. There was a pay copy machine in the law library, and I built collages of editorial cartoons, silly art and humorous quotes to make photocopied stationery. Sometimes I would write letters on the back of menus or commissary order sheets or make art postcards out of cardboard. My armed bank robbery, getting shot by the police, and going to prison was a shock to friends and family. When you see someone act out of character to your understanding, it can be disquieting and confusing. A betrayal. Some friends wrote back or kept in contact. Others drifted away. Some wanted to understand why I had robbed a bank. While awaiting a potential trial or sentencing, I couldn't really talk about the bank robbery. Once sentenced, I could talk some and did my best to explain my actions, but still felt ashamed and constrained to talk about suicidal ideation and self-loathing, for example. I didn't talk about suicide on the phone or in letters because those are read and monitored, and I didn't want to end up on a suicide hold in an empty cell with no blankets wearing a paper jumpsuit. I did my best not to push friends away and to explain what I could. I didn't have any visits from my siblings or parents while I was in prison. I don't know if my parents would have visited. When I was sentenced, I let them know I'd rather they not visit me while I was inside prison. The idea of seeing them in the visiting room filled me with dread. I wrote to them every few months with light updates. I didn't tell my siblings not to visit, but none of us were geographically that close, and I didn't expect any visits from them. I wrote to my former boss at the bakery at least once a year to maintain contact. Letters were always updates on what I was doing inside and without any asks or demands other than responses to things they may have shared in previous letters. Some friends visited while I was inside, which was kind on their part and appreciated. Visiting takes a request to get a person on your approved list, then the logistics of driving out, going through a mass spectrometer that may give false readings and usually did every week, and the awkwardness of visiting someone inside prison. I stayed busy in prison and built a routine. When I wasn't working in the prison furniture factory for my 40 hours a week of shifts, I would go work out on the weight pile with friends, or go to the gym early in the morning for a group jump rope class, or walk the recreation yard track with friends. A Sally, a friend from working in the kitchen or furniture factory, someone I knew in the housing unit or from yoga or meditation. 
Just as often I would go alone, listening to a radio Walkman or just thinking. I would read a lot for pleasure and as a mental escape, averaging a few books a week. I had two main cellies during these years, Aaron and then Hal. Both did some meditation and yoga. Aaron was from Oregon and was built like the comedian and actor David Spade, with a similar acerbic wit and too many DUIs. He released before me. Hal was from the East Coast, somewhere between a Vin Diesel and a James Gandolfini, smart with a generous laugh. We would talk about our families, our efforts to improve ourselves, life inside, and what we hoped to do when we got out. I had attended yoga classes for years inside now. In the later years in prison, as other prisoners were transferred or left, I would end up teaching the Ashtanga yoga class, usually in one entry hallway to the Unicorn factory that wasn't used between certain times, with permission from the authorities. As I got closer to my release date, I passed on what I could to the students with the most seniority and interest to continue the class. I would go to Buddhist meditation in the chapel, or also go to watch videos on self-realization, which includes a period of meditation. Hogan Bay, the Zen teacher, would visit regularly, and we would practice following the breath, sitting meditation, walking meditation, Diamond Sutra, and Heart Sutra. The Vajrayana Buddhist monk that visited periodically taught us chants and sat in meditation with us, focusing on Chen Rezi, a bodhisattva of compassion. Often while we sat in meditation, the Christian meetings next door would be singing. I still catch myself humming, Hail, hail, line of Judah, and this train is bound for glory, this train, as we heard it so often through the walls. Through meditation and self-inquiry, I had a breakthrough in my last year in prison. While focusing on the breath and also observing thoughts, several things occurred simultaneously. One was meeting those thoughts so that there was no perceived space between. Not giving the thought energy, but meeting it fully, observing while also asking, who's the one observing? Examining if there's any separation. Seeing thoughts about the past as a story I tell myself. Seeing thoughts about the future as fantasies and speculation. Returning to the place that is, this moment. Fully meeting the illusion of separation from everything. Observing the interstitial spaces between and seeing that dissolve while remaining intensely and entirely present and in the body that is in no way separate from everything else. Here in this moment right now, and this moment right now, and this moment right now, before even the act of sensing. Though separation from this is an illusion, in the moment, blissful energy flows through my body when fully present. Any attempt to cling to the experience, any indulgence of thought takes one out of the moment that is an actuality always here, always present. This is part of where the title Sunder for this series comes from, from my favorite translation of the Buddhist Heart of Perfect Wisdom Sutra. Quote, The Bodhisattva of Compassion, from the depths of perfect wisdom, saw the emptiness of all five senses and sundered the bonds that caused him suffering. Know thus then, form here is only emptiness, emptiness is only form. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Feeling, thought, choice, consciousness itself are the same as this. There's another passage that I found important, quote, No ignorance, or end of ignorance, nor all that comes of ignorance, no withering, no death, 
no end of them. Nor is there pain, or cause of pain, or cease in pain, or noble path to lead from pain, not even wisdom to attain, for attainment too is emptiness. The description I give is inadequate, as all descriptions are coarse approximations to be intellectualized rather than understood, yet still it would be without merit to gloss over this or not mention the breakthrough. I don't really talk about it much, and inside I didn't walk around blissed out or disconnected any more than I have since my release from prison. A listener to this podcast, shout out Jeanette, also sent me a quote from Eugene B. Debs. Debs was a socialist who ran for the office of president four times, from 1904 to 1920, the last campaign from his prison cell. In 1918, he was charged with sedition and sentenced to 10 years in prison for advocating that men refuse the draft into World War I. This time period in history has some parallels to our own. In 1918 and 1919, a global influenza pandemic killed between 17 and 50 million people. Eugene Debs said, quote, Prison inmates should be paid for their labor at the prevailing rate of wages, so that when the convict is released, he will not have to return to a sundered home and face a hostile world. I want to be clear that the personal breakthrough or Satori experience also did not exempt me from continuing struggles after prison with depression, suicidal ideation, and addiction. I find self-inquiry and meditation valuable, and believe such has improved outcomes. Speaking of improved outcomes, keeping busy and building a routine in prison is important and makes the sentence easier and more productive. At the same time, I could see incarcerated folks who would get released and return to prison in a few months. Prisoners who had kept busy and built a solid routine and who did not want to return. Yet here they were, back in prison. Something was missing or disconnected. I would get a few pieces of the puzzle in drug treatment, but it wouldn't be until years and years later that I would get the whole picture. Pablo Picasso is quoted as saying, Our goals can only be reached through the vehicle of a plan in which we must fervently believe and upon which we must vigorously act. There is no other route to success. Having a plan is important. I would take this further, though, as many people can develop unrealistic plans. As I took classes and trained to be an organizer in 2019, I would be introduced to the concept of building a credible plan to win. A credible plan to win is one of the key concepts of labor organizing. Wanting something is not the same as a plan to achieve that thing. Plans without a solid foundation lack credibility. A credible plan requires a solid analysis of the conditions, a map of the terrain and factors that must be overcome, so that you're building a plan that accounts for those factors. It takes an analysis of progress that doesn't rely solely on gut feelings or belief, but instead on clear structure tests that determine where you are in your plan, so that the plan can be refined and improved. A determination if the tactics that inform your strategy have a historical basis for success. A credible plan takes resiliency, the ability to adapt, as usually any plan to change directions will cause discomfort, including internal and external conflict. A credible plan also takes some level of vision towards a realistic and achievable series of goals, and the determination and will to see the plan through. Some of the incarcerated would get to the halfway house and be unable to make the transition. 
Often the frustrations of partial incarceration would be a factor for which they had not mentally prepared. Some would return to relationships with friends or family that would undermine their plans to stay out. Crim criminal lifestyles or addiction issues or toxic relationships triggering unhealthy responses. Some would release from prison with huge triggers they had not examined nor resolved while in prison. Drug relapse triggers and thinking habits that gave them permission to engage in behaviors that would get them back inside. When I got into labor organizing in 2019, the emphasis on serious and credible planning came up immediately because people's lives and careers and livelihood are at risk. Going in with poor planning is a betrayal at worst and at best an underappreciation of the trust given and required. That trust is to be respected and honored. One of my favorite pieces of labor writing is Axioms for Organizers by Fred Ross Sr., a mentor of famous organizers like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huertas. You can find Axioms for Organizers easily online. Total, it is about four pages of one or two sentence statements. One of my favorites is, quote, Half-assed job. In any kind of work, if you do a half-assed job, at least you get some of the work done. In organizing, you don't get anything done. Unquote. This gets to the key, a credible plan that you commit to fully. The quote also acknowledges the risks. You must be, at the very least, more organized than the factors or forces aligned against you, whether you wish to stay out of prison or win a unionization campaign. After a few years at Sheridan, I started in the Drug Treatment Program, also known as the Drug Awareness Program, or DAP. The main focus for this 500-hour group treatment involved rational behavioral therapy, also known as cognitive behavioral therapy. The focus of this therapy is identifying what you say to yourself when situations occur, and identifying at the core whether or not what you are telling yourself is true, or a thinking error that misidentifies the issue at hand, and using that knowledge to change how you interact. A lot of focus on identifying and communicating what you like or don't like and what you want or don't want. I found the concept of thinking errors useful. Roughly two-thirds of incarcerated people in the U.S. have a history of substance abuse or dependency issues, but only 11% of the incarcerated today have access to recovery programs. Drug treatment helped me see how dependency on drugs stunts the growth of other healthier coping skills. I started using marijuana at 13, my drug of choice, and for me, the dependency meant an emotional immaturity as my regular drug use undermined building adult coping skills. In my late teens and early 20s, I had used alcohol, as well as methamphetamines, psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, and tried other narcotics and barbiturates. In the end, my dependency issues were always around marijuana. Here's where I have to make an obligatory reference to Half-Baked and Bob Saget's famous line when Dave Chappelle's character admits to a weed addiction. I'm here today because I'm addicted to marijuana. You in here for some marijuana? Marijuana? Man, this is some bullshit! Marijuana is not a drug. I used to suck dick for coke. I seen them! Now that's an addiction, man. You ever suck some dick for marijuana? Huh? No. No, I can't say I have. I didn't think so. People are not rats, but we are social animals responding to our conditions. 
in famous rat experiments, a source of regular water and a source of cocaine-laced water are placed side by side in two separate rat environs. In the first environment, the rats have plenty of space and low stress. In the second environment, the rats are cramped and under, and under high stress conditions. The unstressed rats don't touch the cocaine water. The stressed rats use the cocaine water. A fair amount of drug use, in my opinion, is also a coping response to environmental stressors. When people have fulfilling lives, drug use declines. After I completed the drug treatment program, I volunteered to mentor. I was assigned to unpaid work with a drug treatment specialist and sat in on a second round of classes, assisting others in treatment with their assignments as well as back in the housing unit. Volunteering as a mentor also helped me stay at Sheridan rather than be transferred to a shittier for-profit prison in California. The drug treatment class in a group setting helped me see a couple important things. It deepened my understanding that I'd entered prison without a clear plan of what I was going to be doing after I got out, a plight common amongst the group of prisoners in treatment. My release date still seemed a long way away, but a lack of direction or a plan to me appeared to be a real problem. I wanted to stay out. I wanted a life with my spouse. I was likely to go back to bakery work. But I met a lot of guys inside who wanted to stay out, and who instead came back. Recidivism, meaning returning to prison over a violation of parole or a new criminal charge, is a 44% return rate in the first year out in the U.S., one of the highest recidivism rates in the world. Prisoners with a history of drug dependency that do not receive drug treatment have an even higher recidivism rate at 68%. I'll discuss this in more detail in a future episode, but part of what took me a long time to publish this episode is I still struggle with marijuana dependence and abuse. I did not use it for many years when I released from prison, but relapsed multiple times once marijuana became legal in Oregon. My relationship to marijuana remains unhealthy. If I start using, I will soon enough be using too much, too often, and end up building a ridiculous tolerance. Writing about drug treatment for this episode motivated me to curb my use again and reconsider my relapse triggers. I had learned some useful skills that would reduce the likelihood of relapse and depression and despair, but there was an aspect to this of avoidance. Avoiding those triggers that would increase my risk of returning to prison was good, but not quite the same as building a credible plan to achieve a transformational goal. I had reinforced my class consciousness and started to recognize power structures but I didn't yet know how to affect real change in this world. My politics were still underdeveloped, and while recognizing the falseness and hollowness of capitalism, I had no real developed critique. This is why I love labor organizing so much, the focus on your empowerment and agency and the empowerment and agency of other workers to transform their lives and the lives of their families. In a time when the working class loses so many battles of the class war raging all around us, organizing is the catalyst of real change. I mentioned in a previous episode the difference between a prisoner and an inmate in terms of class consciousness. Prisoners set boundaries and hold a line of conduct. Talking or not talking to a corrections officer can have similar consequences to talking or not talking to a police officer. It's better not to get in the habit of gossiping with your captors. A common interrogation trick is asking someone innocuous questions and then switching to incriminating and consequential questions. It is psychologically difficult for people to go from answering questions to asserting rights and stopping the interaction. One way to reduce corrections officers attempting to interact was to shut them down. A random question from a CO could be shut down by answering, I don't fraternize with corrections officers. 
flipping the script and reminding the officer that the Bureau of Prisons rules forbid the prison staff from fraternizing with the incarcerated. Prison leaves a mark. One can become institutionalized, and then as a result struggle to reorient to a world outside prison. This is especially true when prisons are forced labor camps and warehousing of prisoners rather than focused on education and rehabilitation. While I think you could argue correctly that a lot of prisoners are political prisoners, the drug war is certainly highly political, for example, there were only a few explicitly political prisoners at Sheridan. One was a man who had fought for Puerto Rican liberation and independence at great personal cost. He worked in the library, helping other prisoners get access to books, which is how we connected initially when I was setting up a library card. He was known to be a political prisoner amongst the incarcerated men, which meant he was accorded a degree of respect as political prisoners inside are usually seen as outside the criminal lifestyle and code. It took a while for our acquaintance to develop. He was serious and looked at things deeply, while I was just starting to get below the surface. In our conversations over the years, he helped me grow and consider larger issues beyond my rudimentary political development at the time. An example of this was the prison library had been sent by the Bureau of Prisons a poster on the U.S. Civil War. Across the poster were 50 or more photos of large numbers of people from the U.S. Civil War. What's missing from this poster about the Civil War, he asked me. I couldn't spot it. Black people, he said. I looked closer. In this poster celebrating history of a Civil War fought over the issue of slavery, in a war where black regiments also served and fought in battle, not a single face in the thousands of people pictured was black. Interacting with this political prisoner challenged my underdeveloped politics and pushed me to think. He asked me to complete my thoughts, to question my assumptions, to explain, and importantly, he listened to my answers. I was challenged to examine the effectiveness of tactics when talking about political events and actions. What were the goals? Were they achieved? If not, why not? I think he also pushed me to understand what a credible plan to win a desired outcome looks like to do deeper assessments of myself and the current social conditions. This process of education was informal and measured. Like many people, my politics were a somewhat incoherent mess. Discussions with someone who has thought more on many of the subjects and educated themselves was helpful. He encouraged me to think and decide for myself, a critical point in how you empower someone. He never talked down to me or lectured me, an important critical skill and orientation that I would recognize in future labor organizer training. Today he is long out of prison, reunited with his spouse and family, embedded in his community, and part of an amazing dedicated long-term project that digitizes and makes freely available the recordings and speeches of activists and radicals, ensuring their work remains accessible. This project is an important and vital part of passing on the radical tradition of resistance and revolution to future generations. In the current decade, the U.S. political prisoners like Leonard Peltier, still in prison today, or Mumia Abu-Jamal, still in prison today, are spoken of less often. Chelsea Manning's pardon was a rare exception, as whistleblowers like Edward Snowden live outside of U.S. jurisdiction with the understanding that the U.S. would imprison him forever. The political prisoner and journalist Julian Assange is still being held in the Belmarsh prison in London while extradition challenges drag on. Amnesty International continues to press for his immediate release. The 30 remaining detainees in Guantanamo Bay, many of whom were tortured repeatedly and denied due process, are still imprisoned. Along with my retelling of conditions back in the early aughts, I want to talk about conditions at Sheridan FCI more recently and today. 
during the Trump administration, asylum seekers coming to the U.S. were being held in federal detention by the government in an attempt to criminalize and deter immigration from those fleeing political violence. The U.S. did this under Obama and does this under Biden, just not to the same degree or as publicly. But as a result of these policies in 2018 and 2019, hundreds of asylum seekers fleeing political violence were being held at the FDC in legal limbo. Seven prisoners at Sheridan FCI died since the start of the pandemic, though the prison claims none of the deaths were due to COVID. One of the confirmed deaths was a prisoner committing suicide. Conditions got so bad inside the federal prison that prisoners initiated hunger strikes in the summer of 2022. In August of 2022, it was reported that Sheridan prison staff had started retaliating against prisoners who had complained of excessive lockdowns, inedible food, and poor conditions. The Bureau of Prisons sent in what prisoners call goon squads. The acronym is SORT for Special Operations and Response Teams, basically prison SWAT, kitted out in military riot gear. First-hand reports from prisoners state that the Bureau of Prisons goon squads were going cell to cell and tossing the cells, destroying personal property, and viciously beating prisoners. Prisoners described watching incarcerated men being punched, hit, kicked, thrown, beaten with batons by groups of BOP corrections officers. Men locked in cells watched other prisoners dragged into shower areas without cameras, and they reported you can hear from your cell the sounds of prisoners screaming while being assaulted by guards. Prisoners had for years been complaining of inadequate medical care and neglected prisoners with diabetes or cancer diagnoses. As of 2022, there were over 200 habeas corpus briefs filed at Sheridan over inhumane conditions. A habeas corpus brief is a federal challenge to detainment as unconstitutional, either by a denial of due process or because of cruel and unusual punishment. Sheridan FCI currently is understaffed by 16%. Understaffed prisons cut corners and tend to reduce education activities, medical access, family visiting, and yard time. This creates a vicious feedback loop as prisoners become agitated, restless, and angry in excessive lockdown. Our carceral state is brutal by choice and design. Reforms are important, if often late and reactive. In our society, we teach each other what is valued and important, not with words, but with actions and the actions of the state show the United States each day answering the question posed by Rosa Luxemburg, socialism or barbarism? Firmly in the latter camp. The point is it doesn't have to be this way. The prison industrial complex can be transformed, but it requires a society that values people and lives not spent in service to profiting billionaires and corporate masters while destroying the planet which we are a part of and entirely depend upon for our survival waiting for politicians or courts or billionaires or technology or corporate overlords to change the system means the system will never change to serve people. It's up to you and me and people broadly deciding to build our collective power to change things from the bottom up. In the next episode of Sunder, I'll discuss what it was like getting out of prison and into a halfway house in 2002 after serving 60 months, five years of my 76-month sentence. Hi, I'm Brian, the host of Sunder. In the podcast, I've walked you through an armed bank robbery I committed in 1997, and the aftermath including five years in a federal prison. True crime and prison time from the inside perspective. I'll also be discussing politics as a volunteer labor organizer and committed socialist, so it is a political podcast. 
And lastly, I will talk about how to take action and be an agent of change in this world, in your community, right now. How you can break free of feeling powerless to change conditions and joyously fight for collective liberation. You and I have this critical decade to forge the mass movement required to change conditions and build a future worth having. Let's do this together, one step at a time. Welcome to Sunder. Eugene Debs, the son of immigrants, began working on the railroad in Terre Haute, Indiana, just after the end of the Civil War. He was 14 years old. He believed in the promise of American life. He believed that people could improve themselves. And that was what was the promise of the American democratic creed. When the Pullman Company drastically cut wages in 1894, Eugene Debs led the American Railway Union in a nationwide strike that brought railroads to a standstill. He was arrested and sent to jail. He emerged to lead a movement. The Pullman strike seemed to be a, a turning point. I think he looked at that and said that the two-party system was working against working people and that uh, that wouldn't be the effective avenue for change. Debs ran as the Socialist Party candidate for president five times. He's outside the mainstream. He doesn't accept the conventional wisdom. And he says, wait a minute, there's a better way. There's a different way. He delivered a speech in 1918 against American involvement in World War I and was sentenced to 10 years in prison for violating the Espionage Act. He ran for president for the final time from his prison cell. He received almost a million votes. But what Debs was about was changing public consciousness and saying, you know what, that's wrong. And that's what we have got to do as well. I don't want 100 years from now people to be looking back and say, why did you let the fossil fuel industry destroy the planet? Were you crazy? Section 2. Have Solidarity Here in the Physical World. In our society today, alienation, feeling disconnected and without a place, and isolation, being alone, are rampant at a time when we have never been more connected. The internet is a space where hundreds of millions share their thoughts and interact every day. But as a culture, we as humans are not closer. While we may find others with similar concerns or interests online, being online, under capitalism especially, is not a public arena as much as it is an opportunity to mine you for data, to monetize your clicks, to sell you shit, and above all, to keep you online. The psychology around stoking outrage is well developed. Anything that keeps you engaged and clicking is good. With the advent of smartphones, a lot of people started doom-scrolling, cycling through outrage media. The COVID pandemic amplified this tendency. Chemical rushes with no place to release. A real black pill of impotence and paralysis. More than a few people I know now have flip phones or phones that just make phone calls so that they have built-in limits to their time online. In 2013, a political theorist from England named Mark Fisher wrote an essay called Exiting the Vampire Castle. He laid out the destructive functions of online discourse, which too often become moral positioning and a descent into identity politics. Fisher showed how this online world undermined any focus on class issues or material objectives and instead became about subjective goals and call-out culture. 
In labor organizing, the emphasis for many whom I respect is that organizing is about face-to-face -face interactions between people. You can mobilize folks online, you can spread information, raise awareness, etc. But online interactions do not carry the weight required for organizing, which requires listening, making a plan, and following up. Most people, whether they realize it or not, put others in broad categories. There's people you only interact with online. There's people you only interact with at work in the physical internet world. And there's people you know and interact with outside of work in the physical world. This last relationship is vastly closer. You can have extremely meaningful online relationships, but often, in larger settings, the anonymity and distance of the internet also encourages mercenary and toxic responses, where the person feels empowered to at least be cruel to someone they don't know in the physical world. People can mistake the online world as a place where effective and deep organizing can occur and can mistake approval and likes online or social media clout as effective organizing. The miscategorization of online spaces relates to the lack of a credible plan. Intentions that miss the mark. Just as many want to stay out of prison but are unable to develop an effective plan. Many want to organize but are unable to see the systemic limits of online spaces. One of the exercises while I was in drug treatment in prison was to ask participants to write what it would say in your obituary if you died today, then to write what you would like your obituary to say someday. The purpose is to ask yourself about what legacy you will leave and what your goals are. I think about this because it would suck to have your obituary read this way. Unique person died last Sunday. They sure did win some arguments with people who were wrong on the internet, and some of their posts had many likes. They will be remembered for the time they put Twitter user Chokefist69420 in their place and for their 8,000 hours of Red Dead Redemption played. We are standing at the precipice of economic and climate collapse. There is meaningful and fulfilling work that needs to be done here, in the physical world, for your liberation and the liberation of your siblings. Keyboard warriors are not what is required. The vast majority of the organizing work is going to be in your physical community with each other. Do you want it to say in your obituary, when you die, that you organized and built unbreakable solidarity through a credible plan to win with your siblings, and that together you transformed this world? On that note, also understand that if you are to be effective in the physical world, you will want to be respected in some capacity, either in your workplace or in your community, and hopefully both. Respect comes from sharing conditions, showing up, being consistent, being competent at what you do, being part of a team, and listening. Don't be the person who is not respected in your workplace or community and who is also an open socialist or labor militant. Seriously, don't fucking do that. That undermines your legitimacy and the project and is an indication that it's time for you to refocus. Be a leader by example not a liability that no one respects. This is the work. Put down the doom-scrolling device that undermines your solidarity and mental health. Spend less time on the toxic internet that is about paralysis and infantilization. Let's get to it together. We're in a moment where there are so many left-leaning young people out there who support unions in theory, 
but don't have direct experience with them yet. Even just organizing a small group of friends to show up to a picket line means a lot to the workers who are out there on strike. The labor organizer and writer Jane McAlevey recently spoke with Teen Vogue about ways um, to do strike support, saying, visiting a picket line also allows the community to get more details on what workers need and how allies can provide support. Do they need bottled water to keep marching in the summer heat? Maybe some hand warmers for a wintertime strike? Could they use snacks, portable phone chargers? It can make a huge difference to have those needs met. Plus, getting involved is a great way to meet members of your own community with whom you might not otherwise interact. Remember, workers don't exist in a silo. They're just as much a part of our communities as anyone else. And joining a picket line could be the first step to strengthening those bonds. Being an organization can help to support strikes in a more coordinated way. For example, many DSA chapters across the country have turned their infrastructure towards supporting strikes. I'm going to take a second to brag about my DSA chapter in Philadelphia, which created the I'll Be There pledge to get people to sign up to support possible upcoming strikes. We use this list of people to mobilize whenever labor actions pop up. So doing strike support isn't just about feeling good. Sometimes it can literally be the difference between a strike that's successful and one that's not. It gives you a chance to meet working people where they're at and establish important political relationships. There is no greater political education than participating in a strike, even as a supporter. Section 3, Strike Support. A few years ago, I was part of an effort through my local DSA chapter to support nurses going out on a picket line in front of the hospital where they work. Easily 900 nurses, most of whom had never been on a picket line before. The weeks before, there had been sign-making parties where we helped nurses and union staffers prepare hundreds of picket signs. Hospitals across the U.S. are incredibly understaffed, giving nurses unbelievable burdens to provide care without adequate time or support. Over 5,000 hospital workers died during COVID, fighting to save lives. The working conditions for these nurses massively impacts the quality of patient care. Yet there is an entire industry amongst the hospital administrations to exploit, burn through, and undermine the entire principle of what it means to help people through medical crises, a for-profit healthcare system that requires winners and losers and prioritizes shareholder profits overall. At the beginning of the one-day picket, the nurses were a little nervous and unsure. It was an unfamiliar action, and the trepidation the nurses felt was understandable. Strike captains were distributed throughout the group with bullhorns and chant sheets. A strike captain knows the rules of a strike, knows the areas the strikers will occupy, generally the public easements, and coordinates with other strike captains and plans the action. The group started moving as they were encouraged by their picket captains, walking along the sidewalks around the hospital. You could see the nurses connecting with hundreds and hundreds of their co-workers on the line together. You could see them, as they chanted together, actually internalize not only that safe staffing levels save lives, not only that their work conditions are their patient care conditions, but that they do deserve dignity and respect, and that they can act together to collectively win better conditions, benefits, and pay. A light came on behind the eyes of many nurses, a spark of class consciousness and an understanding of their power as members of the working class. Power over our labor when we build unbreakable solidarity and undertake credible plans to win. The next day in the hospital, as the union stewards made their rounds, Many nurses approached to express how powerful the picket had been in opening their eyes and solidifying the resolve. When can we do that again, they asked. 
Why do unions matter? When union co-workers are organized and through a process develop what Jane McLevy calls unbreakable solidarity and a credible plan to win, you are empowered to change your workplace, but also your world. An organized working class is the only clear path to changing our system of governance that continually takes from the 99% to further enrich the 1%. An organized working class was part of the civil rights movement in the U.S. and will be central to any significant democratic change in the future. Why does labor organizing matter? Despite roughly 70% support in public polling for unions, union density is at one of the lowest points in U.S. history, 10.1% in the U.S. in 2022. There are a lot of reasons for this low density. They all point to a continual class war being waged by the owner class upon the working class. Labor organizing in the U.S. took a huge hit with the passage of Taft-Hartley in 1947. Legislation passed in response to McCarthyism and the U.S. shifting towards the Cold War. Taft-Hartley circumscribed the role of communists, socialists, and anarchists in elected union positions. The communists, socialists, and anarchists were the primary union organizers committed to building an organized working class. When these committed organizers were purged, the union bureaucrats that remained began deepening the tendency of union position holders that did not understand how to organize. Even more critically, these bureaucrats believed that power came from campaign contributions to politicians, from cozy relationships with the business leaders, and lapdog unions that were more responsive to management than to their own rank and file. Any trained labor organizer can tell you that the only power you and your coworkers have is the power to control your own labor, to collectively withhold your labor and strike. Everything else is just a pretty please ask to the boss. Organized workers that repeatedly demonstrate their majority organization almost always win real, transformative demands at the bargaining table. A bargaining committee without an organized rank and file able to pose a credible strike threat has very little leverage to win demands. The employer and the union-busting firms they hire monitor worker engagement closely because they understand also that workers showing solidarity and repeatedly demonstrating their majority position means they have to negotiate or risk serious losses. The subject of this section is strike support. This is something you can likely do and which I will actively encourage you to take on. Strike support is when, as a member of a community, you show up for your siblings in struggle who are undertaking the most radical, empowering, and risky act of picketing and striking an employer. You are showing workers that their community sees them fighting for better and supports them in their struggle. You are showing them community solidarity. Strike support at the core is talking with and listening to workers on the strike line. You are there for the workers, so 80% of your time is listening, not so much talking. Asking open-ended questions like, what's the hardest part of your job? What are you and your coworkers demanding from the boss? What could you use in the strike line? Is there a strike fund people can donate to? Are there times of the day when you could use more folks in the line? If you are unionized, showing up in solidarity as another union worker is great, and appreciated almost always, and a way of opening discussion. Community support, when done correctly, can be a great force multiplier and spirits booster for the workers picketing. The cardinal rule is you are guests in the line and cannot substitute your own agenda, nor act in a way that will upset the picketing workers. You are there to support the workers and their demands, full stop. That said, you can engage in worker education through conversation that can help move workers towards greater solidarity as long as this is done respectfully.
This is an important opportunity to be radically normal. Be a neighbor, a person who also works in the community, who wants workers to win their demands and is offering support. Be yourself, you aren't hiding who you are, but have conversations and use your time wisely. If you are leftist selling or giving away leftist organization newspapers at a picket, you are likely alienating yourself from the majority of the working class folks on that picket line and identifying yourself as an outside agitator with your own agenda. It is not a credible theory of influence nor change. Community support can put good pressure on the boss. They are counting the number of people on the strike line and the boss is often concerned about broad public support. Risking brand damage and negative shareholder perceptions are added complexities you want on the plate of the owner class to leverage your power and win a fair contract. Community support can put good pressure on the union leadership. If community members are the ones showing up on the line, responding to the needs of strikers, then it highlights whether or not the support structure of the union is engaged or adequate. Community support often involves faith communities. 70% of Americans are religious, and bringing a priest, rabbi, or imam to a picket line to identify the righteousness of the workers in standing together and supporting the action means a lot to workers taking on the boss. Locally, the work that Jobs with Justice has done to build faith-labor connections has meant deeper and stronger community support for striking workers and had a real impact. To a lesser degree, bringing some local elected officials to the line can help as long as the rallies are about the workers and their collective struggle first and foremost. Promoting donations to an official strike fund that the union has set up and or promoting and hosting a fundraiser can make a big difference on the strike line for smaller unions or shops especially. In Portland during the 2022 Nabisco strike, donations from the community allowed BCTGM Local 364 to double their strike pay to workers, helping them stay on the line and not feel pressure to cross. Community support in the lead-up to a strike can take a lot of forms. In the lead-up to a potential nationwide UPS strike, the Oregon Strike Ready Coalition, DSA Labor, Jobs with Justice, and Oregon Working Families Party, has canvassed high-visibility houses and businesses to ask for solidarity pledges and for a window placard or yard sign showing that solidarity. They have created stickers and banners, held rallies, and shown up to participate and support the practice pickets outside UPS hubs. DSA in Los Angeles has been organizing donations to fund food deliveries to the striking workers from the WGA and actors and film production workers from SAG-AFTRA on the strike lines. Highly successful and important teacher strikes like those by United Teachers Los Angeles or the Chicago Teachers Union always involve substantial community outreach and support. In 2019, when 30,000 UTLA educators marched in the streets of Los Angeles, there were 30,000 parents, students, and community supporters there with them. The robust strike support helped those workers win transformative and powerful contracts. This is part of why community strike support matters. Another reason community strike support matters is because this is how you increase union density and class consciousness, which is the path to any transformative change in our society. Any real mass movement for change hinges on organized and militant workers. This is how you get there. Help workers teach each other that collective power wins. Strike support is an avenue of direct action that helps build class consciousness and circles of community connections and solidarity for more circles ahead. Knowing each other is what will be required to change this world, to act in unbreakable solidarity, to see through a credible plan to win. A high percentage of the working class as possible, knowing through direct experience what agency they have to change conditions, 
is a requirement for a mass movement to ever achieve a sector-wide strike or a general strike. Strike support as an organizing strategy and natural outreach of tangible, real solidarity stands in stark contrast to online mobilizing and the inverted incentives of online life. I'm a member of Jobs with Justice, a volunteer organization in many cities across the U.S. As a member, you pledge to show up to five or more pickets, rallies, or strikes a year, to show up for workers in your community when your siblings most need your support. If you are looking for a way to break through paralysis, black pills, or doom scrolling, taking a friend and going to your local picket line to support workers is a real antidote to despair. If you haven't already, sign up today at jwj.org. Your local DSA chapter's labor working group may also be engaged with support efforts or know who to contact. Labor Notes is also a fantastic resource for learning organizing skills at every level and building workplace democracy. Picket support is a way you can have an impact in your community right now. In the next episode, I'll talk about Halfway House and getting out of prison. Subscribe and catch the whole tale. There's more to this story of bank robbery, prison, politics, and taking action in a troubled world. You can help me by rating and reviewing the podcast. I'm purposely not on social media, so I rely on you to spread the word about Sunder. Send a link to the podcast to a friend today. Sunder is written, edited, and produced by Brian Denning. The theme song is by Holy Sons. You can contact Sunder at podcastsunder at gmail.com. Support the work being done here by subscribing on Patreon. Even better, become a dues-paying, participating member of your local DSA chapter. The reason I got into labor organizing, much of the access to training and resources, and a big part of my political development has come from being a part of the largest socialist organization in the United States, the Democratic Socialists of America. Join now at dsausa.org. You are braver than you know, and absolutely have the ability to change this world. Good hunting.